I'm Isabel Mitoso, Professor of Political Communication in Brazil. And in partnership with Alex Cryer, Professor of Politics in the UK, I'll produce the podcast Democratic Engagement today. For this first episode, we had planned to present ourselves to you and talk a bit about our own research on democratic engagement. However, due to the pandemic times we are facing, we thought it would be better to talk to our fellow academics worldwide about how this crisis can affect democracy and the social sciences research as we know. Which are the challenges in each country? Which seem to be the consequences of this moment? What is each country facing during this coronavirus pandemic beyond the sanitary problems? So, we specialists from the social sciences field in Brazil, the UK, Australia shared our knowledge and views about those issues. Um, so, I think uh, in reflection of the fact that we both have quite similar public interest, research interests to do with uh, parliaments and public engagement and political engagement more broadly, I would say as well. I think we were keen in the present context to discuss democratic politics, non-democratic politics uh, in a bit more of a specific way in terms of coping with the current crisis. It also seems like a very useful thing for academics to do at the moment in terms of kind of broadcasting and hopefully engaging others with their research in the form of a podcast uh, and also helping through online means to have those conversations and connections with uh, other people and other institutions and get a comparative sense of yeah really what the situation is in a geopolitical sense in terms of healthcare and public services and so on and so forth so it seemed like a very timely project to be working on. Okay so how do you think the Brexit is affecting how the UK is dealing with the situation, I mean, in terms of health-related workers that are from outside the UK, and is there any consequence, you know, that you can see from the Brexit on the situation? I think it's, um, it's difficult to give a really sort of categorical answer on this, I think because there was so much uncertainty surrounding Brexit, even when uh, this crisis was in its infancy and, and indeed before. So I think um, you've got to two substantial variables that the only the only thing I would say about sort of the connection between Brexit and COVID-19, I heard that, for example, the UK being out of the EU would be problematic in terms of having access to a vaccine, for example, if it was sort of manufactured found in, in Germany, that would be that would be an issue. And as we as we've uh, spoken about before, this also raises questions about about migrant workers, about uh, about NHS staff, for example, about sort of trying to kind of rush people through into being able to kind of actively help in healthcare services. That's obviously relevant to the UK in terms of in terms of kind of rushing people through sort of final tests and that kind of thing, but also sort of easing um, some restrictions. That's not just particular and peculiar to the UK, it's something that we're seeing elsewhere uh, elsewhere globally as well. So I, I think it's causing people to sort of rethink or perhaps have a slightly different attitude to things that we might have expected Brexit to help kind of engineer or kind of reinforce in terms of, kind of travel restrictions, in terms of kind of fluxes in and out country. And also it's been interesting, I think, just in terms of quite rightly how prominent a um, 
discussion with COVID has been, I think, sort of Brexit to a certain extent has also kind of taken a bit of a backseat. In some senses, it's had to because of the restrictions on, for example, parliamentary discussion, that kind of thing. So I think, you know, it is, uh, it's going to be important, I think, to discuss those two kind of topics in uh, tandem because uh, this might just be my experience, but I, I haven't seen so much discussion or as much discussion as a perhaps would have expected of the relationship between them as opposed to what might mean what one might mean for the other or one sort of taking a bit of a backseat while there's a essentially a kind of international crisis so it's really difficult to say at the moment what the relationship is because i think a lot of the time uh covid is sort of discussed in isolation apart from the spheres on which it impacts which are often a lot more immediate than a kind of ongoing uh, political negotiation for for example i've also seen parties like the green party for example i think has been in support of essentially calling this whole brexit thing off you know you know i think it it depends also obviously on on, on what party you're asking uh, about this and what their stance was to do with uh, uh, Brexit. So, yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion that unfolds and changes. I think we might see a bit more clarity on that relationship once lockdown begins to ease and there's a certain comfort in discussing kind of separate subjects. Obviously, they're not separate subjects, but discussing Brexit in its own right is to me to actually be quite rare at the moment. Um, again, reasonably so in, in the current context. Yeah, it's good to see uh, this kind of situation in the UK because Brexit situation would be potentially bad in the case of a global crisis because, you know, we have many European funds now helping countries like Spain and Italy that were really hit by this pandemic. But I think maybe supporters of Brexit can now say that oh, uh, the UK really had some funds for saving the country without needing European funds or this kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see what it's doing to already kind of held perspectives on, on EU, for example. I mean, in a certain sense, I think it's kind of um, through those sort of conversations that you were drawing attention to, it's illustrating a lot of um, conflicts contradictions and ironies and paradoxes about people's relationship to what they thought their relationship was with the EU. It's throwing some things into kind of sharp relief and shedding light on some of the benefits, for example, of sort of EU membership. I think those were their first place for people to examine, so perhaps it's perhaps it's kind of raised the profile of, of a couple of things that were considerations within the Brexit debate when we were just talking about uh, EU membership. But yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how how that kind of how that kind of stuff unfolds. And you're right to say that uh, you know situations like this straight certain kind of aspects of EU membership that are kind of beneficial but also ways in which a country can there is sort of cope without membership of a supranational body. It's um it's an interesting time for seeing how that kind of membership works in, in practice. So Uh, suppose yeah as you say it's it's often interesting to look at it from the point of view of a single individual and what their perspective was beforehand and whether that's kind of led them to question or just kind of re-entrench uh, their views i guess yeah here the situation you know is completely different we didn't have any problem with other countries directly i mean like you with the Brexit. But during this pandemic, we had some problems. I think you've heard about the problem we had from when Brazil bought some equipments from China and it was blocked by the United States. 
but in fact we have we should have to, theoretically we have a good relationship commercial relationship with the United States but we had this problem and our government was not efficient enough to make anything so now I think this coronavirus outbreak here is a nightmare because we don't see a coordinated action between the federal government and the states you know the states in this case specifically of the health-related equipments that was coming from China and were blocked in the U.S. And the governors from the northeast of Brazil had to do a partnership to have these equipments directly to the northeast of the country, to these states, because the federal government was not helping. Since some equipments from, for example, from the state of Bahia arrived in Sao Paulo, the state of Sao Paulo, which concentrates the majority of the cases in the country, I think one-third of the cases is in the state of Sao Paulo, and they blocked this equipment. So the state of Bahia couldn't have this, and the federal government didn't intervene in the situation. So, you know, while regional governments are acting not to see their health systems to collapse, The president, Jair Bolsonaro, has said several times that the federal government has nothing to do, for example, with the isolation policies applied by these regional and local governments. So it's a completely different situation. Uh, while you, you are in this lockdown, kind of in a limbo, we are in this limbo, but also really concerned about many other social problems that are rising because of, especially because of this pandemic. And now we can see very clearly especially when we talk about politics and our federal system. So it's interesting, but not in a good way. Tell me more about Bolsonaro in this uh, context in terms of how has he sort of been um, conducting himself and his kind of actions, sort of what's his relationship been like with the, I suppose, the kind of crisis itself, some of the directives, some of the policies, sort of interested in some of the similarities and differences with Trump or, I suppose, similar figures in this kind of respect how um what sort of image has bolsonaro been projecting these circumstances i think we cannot compare trump and bolsonaro it's only possible if we talk about how much none of them wants to be considered guilty for what's happening now especially the, when the question is economy trump is a real liberal politician since he comes from the business but he's really controlled by the american checks and balances system which is quite different from the brazilian one So Bolsonaro, he said he was liberal, but he's liberal in economy, but very conservative in other aspects like traditions. And he's a um, convenient liberal because he, when it benefits his government, it's okay. When it doesn't benefit, it's not okay. So, for example, he's criticizing a lot journalists in the country. So because he says that journalism is giving an alarm to the population because of this situation, you know, I think you've seen there that he said before coronavirus, just a light flu. But in the middle of all of this, he, he created a bigger crisis. A political crisis because he was, you know, he was criticizing his former minister of health, 
because he was acting in favor of the state and in favor of the population. He was a controversial political figure, Luis Enrique Mandetta, because in the beginning of this year, until the beginning of this year, he had really tough critics on the national health system, which is public in Brazil. So as they are liberals, they wanted to make part of the system to be a private system and not a public one anymore. But this public system, which is helping, uh, which is managing the whole situation. So Bolsonaro spent some weeks very bothered about the situation that the former minister of health was talking to the press every day, was given, you know, was making a kind of accountability process on the coronavirus situation in Brazil. So Bolsonaro said that there were many ministers, that was Luiz Henrique Mandetta, that were thinking they were stars shining over the government. So these are words he used at that time. So he spent almost two weeks saying this kind of things. And we spent two weeks that should have been concentrated to the combat of the spread of this virus in the country. He was trying to say to us that he was going to dismiss the Minister of Health. And he finally did it a week ago, more than a week ago. And now we have a new minister who is learning how to deal with the situation in the middle of this crisis. He's doing almost nothing. I haven't heard about this man since the first day he was in charge, I think. I heard his name or, I don't know, I, I heard about him twice. It's more than a week. Has It has been more than a week. And now we have more than 60,000 cases, confirmed cases of coronavirus in Brazil. And, you know, when Luiz Henrique Mandetta was in charge, the former Minister of Health, less than two weeks ago, we had a bit more than 6,000. So we have 10 times more cases now in a in two weeks, in less than two weeks. And the president is still causing more crisis. Last week, as you should know, he dismissed the Minister of National Security, Sergio Moro, who was one of his strongest allies. And now we have many of other facts because of this dismissal, because this minister is very connected to the national police and people from the police didn't like this dismissal, his dismissal. So one of the sons of Bolsonaro is a senator and he has a lot of investigations going on. So now each day we know something new about these investigations. Things that we didn't know for a year and a half because it was being archived. But now I think it's a kind of vendetta. So this minister is talking a lot and Bolsonaro is only concerned about defend himself and his sons from what Sergio Moro is saying. So we are in the middle of this pandemic and in the middle of a bigger crisis. And Brazil is so peculiar. Uh, just for you to understand how Brazilian politics and society are tricky. Even though the president's doing nothing but contradicting the World Health Organization recommendations in a, in some opinion polls that Datafolha Institute made two weeks ago, almost 6% of the population thinks he should not resign or something like that. Even though 75% of the people agree with the policies, the lockdown policies, they think that the president who is doing nothing about that don't need to resign or be impeached. He's good. He, he should continue in the government. So it's 
crazy. Yeah, I was going to ask about the situation from the public perceptions point of view, which again is another kind of uh, interest of ours, I suppose, as far as engagement goes. Um, it might be to sort of complex a question or uh, a completely unanswerable question, but do you get any sense of why there might be that sort of, uh, I suppose, that mismatch, that disjuncture between objectively what we might see the government and leadership performances being and the, um, the relatively low level of sort of public outcry or opposition, for example. Um, what would you think might be the reason for that? I think when we talk about the population, I think part of the population that supported Bolsonaro is still, you know, it's the populism. He worked really well, I, I may assume he, he worked really well on his speeches uh, around, you know, his populist image. And so I think part of this population don't want to say because uh, most people that voted for Bolsonaro in 2018 were against the former government from the Labour's Party, the Brazilian Labour's Party, BT. And there were many corruption scandals at that time. We had many, many politicians under arrest and people were very cynical about how politicians could change the situation in Brazil. So Bolsonaro came with a speech like, I'm new on this. He wasn't. He was 20, for 27 years as a deputy. But he said, I'm new on this. I will fight against this corrupted system. Believe me, these politicians do not deserve your trust anymore. So I'll come to change this all. And most of this, spe this speech was supported by the car wash operation. I think you've heard about this. And Sergio Moro was the, uh, the judge who conducted everything. So he was a kind of national hero. He became a kind of national hero for people because of this operation. The Speaker of the House of our House of Representatives was in jail. He's still in jail now in conditional at home, but he was in jail for two years. People were very, were supporting this behavior or somebody who was supporting this behavior. So Bolsonaro came and said to everybody, it was in a backstage, he was saying that he would make Sergio Moro his minister of national security. And he did. He actually did. And part, the other part of his voters come from supporters of Sergio Moro. So last week when Sergio Moro said, I'm out because he's changing the national command of the police and I don't agree with that because it's a political indication and I'm here in this government because he promised he would fight against corruption and he's doing the same thing that the other governments did. I'm leaving. Well, it was a strategy of Sergio Moro, of course, because he's not a saint. But I think part of the voters of, of Bolsonaro who believed in this populist speech and the liberal, the economic liberal speech also that came from his minister of economy, Paulo Guedes, However, now he is in the middle of this crisis because, as he said before, he's protecting his family. So he makes everything to protect. He said he would make everything to protect his family. So he's doing this right now and he is causing uh, a crisis in his government. And we talk, when we talk about the political opposition, I think they were a kind of, they were not acting properly for a long time. For 
at least for the whole year last year, because people were concentrated on the image of Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, Lula, and everybody was concerned only about that. I think he's an important person, he is an important element in this context, of course. We need to pay attention to him, uh, but I think we have to look to the whole situation. We do not have to feed the past because Lula will not be president again. So I think it's kind of illusion. People are feeding for a long time and it's not healthy for democracy because we are facing somebody that's really a damage for democracy. So the opposition should should get together again, get together again. No, opposition in Brazil has never been together. So they have to to get together now to fight. So even though we have different kinds of left wing in Brazil, you know, when the extreme right is in charge, we have to fight these conservative ideas because, for example, Bolsonaro two weeks ago, he was in a protest for the returning of the dictatorship in Brazil. And his government is mostly composed by military commanders. So I think the opposition didn't really work well during the last year because they were treating politics like it was a joke. I think not pronouncing the name correctly, the name of the president, is something so childish. And it begins by this. So I think we have to find another person that could be really a candidate in the next elections to run against Bolsonaro and not thinking about Lula anymore because he's an old man. He, you know, we have to move on. We have to make new politics in Brazil for real and not thinking, just thinking about the past. I, I certainly couldn't leave it on a, a better note <laughs> than that. I don't think it's um yeah. It's just interesting to to hear about that from a, a comparative perspective. I know we're uh, both really interested in uh, Nicole's uh, sort of point of view on this as well. I think it's going to be a really interesting sort of few months in terms of how the political and democratic process works, in terms of how institutions function. You know, even from the point of view of you know the the UK. I think it's been a very sort of um, tempestuous and kind of turmoil-ridden uh, political time, even just from an institutional sense. And I think, you know, we might be sort of discussing this later on, but I think the role of technology, for example, in sort of facilitating democratic discussion, whether that be sort of discussion across democratic spaces or within democratic uh, spaces, you know, i.e. parliamentary discussion, governmental discussion, that kind of thing, it's going to be, it's going to be really key. And I think, you know, sort of, public perception of political leaders and their parties, whether it be sort of populist, authoritarian, liberal, you know, opportunistic liberal, as you sort of very well, it's very, very interesting sort of way of phrasing it, but I'll definitely remember. I think situations like this bring to light crises and blind perspectives, so it's very kind of serious but fascinating at that point. So now we'll talk to Professor Nicole Curato from the University of Canberra in Australia. She's a PhD in politics and senior research fellow at the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance. Her research interests cover deliberative democracy, contemporary social theory, political participation, and she's the author of the book Democracy in a Time of Misery, From Spectacular Tragedies to Deliberative Action. Thank you very much, Nicole, for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. <laughs> okay, so let's start. I, as we know a few things about, just a few things about the Philippine politics, I would like you to talk a little bit about politics in general. How is the political regime there and how things happen in that country? 
and then we talk about how this outbreak is affecting the country in itself. Yes, I think for a lot of political observers, um, the Philippines has really been quite marginal to conversations about global politics. Um, but as of 2016, suddenly it felt like it's part of the political center stage because of its controversial president, Rodrigo Duterte. So he's one of these populist leaders that was brought into power in 2016 by a mixture of like an overwhelming populist moment, but also the accusation of a technological alchemy i.e. troll farms, disinformation networks, Russian interference that brought this man to power. And I think what's fascinating about him is because he's a controversial figure because of the things that he says and the things that he, he does. So, for example, he got into public consciousness because he literally, as a campaign promise, called for the genocide of drug addicts. And I'm not using the word genocide lightly. He did say he will call for the genocide of drug addicts. And typically, we like it when politicians fulfill their campaign promise, but not in this instance, which he did. So I think at the moment, um, it's three, four years into his term. Um, journalists have stopped counting the number of drug addicts that have been killed in his drug war, but some would say there have been 30,000 people killed already, which is pretty an astonishing number in, in a non-wartime kind of moment. And so there are lots of controversies as well. I think you can relate when I say that this is a misogynistic, macho president. So he's been, he made rape jokes against missionaries. He told the military to shoot female rebels in the vagina because if women don't have vaginas, then they're useless. So it gets very crass and very confronting. But what makes it even more interesting is that this president enjoys a trust rating of, uh, I think, more than 80%. So, you know, only politicians around the world could only be envious with this man. So I think this is why it's a puzzle. It's a man who is obviously morally reprehensible, but can get away with murder in the only Catholic country in Southeast Asia. So that is essentially um, the puzzle. I, I think that I would set up um, the country's politics a political puzzle in that manner. Yes. So I've heard about this this violence in the country from the president. It's something kind of institutionalized. And I've read because of this outbreak, this pandemic, he's banning health-related works to go outside of the country, even though they have contracts uh, with other countries. So uh, how is this pandemic affecting the relation between Philippines and other countries and how he's acting inside the country to contain the dissemination of the virus because I've seen they are they said that they should uh, shoot people on the streets if they go outside right yeah um, yeah I think this is institutionalization of violence as um, state policy. So in a way, the Duterte regime's response to the pandemic is really just an extension of its response to all other policy issues. So if it's an issue of drugs, which is a health issue, the answer is violence. If it's the issue of a pandemic, which is obviously a health issue, the, the response is still coercion and violence. Um, we can talk about that a bit more later in terms of the illiberal turn of, of one of Asia's oldest democracies to something that's very illiberal and quite confronting. But I, I find your question about banning of nurses going overseas very important because I think this is how we can locate the Philippines in the global public sphere. The Philippines' main export is its people. And what's keeping the country's economy afloat are remittances from Filipinos all over the world, myself included. So you will see a Filipino anywhere in the world, cruise ships, 
um, seafarers, and of course, not to mention the NHS. The NHS is buoyed by a steady supply of Filipino nurses. I think uh, a Filipino nurse recently passed away, and he was one of, I guess, Boris Johnson's roommates in the ICU when he was confined there. And so there are a lot of Filipino frontliners in the UK, especially in the US, because of the colonial history, and Italy as well. And I think this has been so symbolic in terms of how Filipinos as human exports are treated in the global pandemic. On one hand, nurses are basically dispensable in the Philippines. There's a steady supply of nurses produced by quality educational institutions, but that's not because we want a good healthcare system in the Philippines, but this is because it's an exit from a country that really struggled to provide for its own people. And then when these nurses go overseas, they're treated as if they're not really welcome, right? Like the, I think the policy in the UK is earn, learn, return. So it's very much transactional and instrumental and very dehumanizing to a certain extent. And then now we all applaud for them in the evening because of their service to the world. And so I think banning nurses from leaving the Philippines is just an extension of this very instrumental treatment of a feminized labor that is just where where inequalities are just exacerbated um, during during the pandemic. So I think that point that you raised is is very important because if there's any I think peculiarity or unique contribution of Philippines in the world, it's really keeping that healthcare system alive. Yeah, it's interesting to say uh, when you say that it it affects the NHS, right, Alex? Because the the UK NHS is composed by people from outside the country, mostly Filipino nurses, Spanish nurses, yeah, yeah. Polish nurses. <laughs> yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see the relationship between that and. Kind of preparations that were being made for Brexit, you know, sort of to kind of rush through qualification of nurses from all types of uh, backgrounds as well. So I think the, the strain that this is putting on uh, NHS resources is really interesting in terms of what was kind of planned for in terms of, you know, what the situation was going to be towards um, the EU, for example, but also kind of more widely as well. So I think, again, there's a kind of interesting uh, conversation and dilemma uh, there, certainly. Yes. You talked about the importance of exporting professionals for the Filipino economy. And do you think uh, Duterte is breaking uh, some bilateral agreements to do this kind of policies? And I mean, I think it's a kind of contradictory because he's keeping these health workers in the country, breaking these international agreements. But I don't know how, uh, what's the policy really in this in this action because he's trying to protect the the population or what's his priority in this moment right i think with the ban on nurses traveling overseas that was later on cl clarified that if you already have a contract to work overseas then fine you can leave but in a way it's also a reaction to uh, the very reactionary and instrumental uh, policies of other countries so for example for the longest time it's been so hard to migrate to the united states especially with trump being in power and then suddenly when the pandemic happened the state department just said if you have qualifications if you have medical qualifications contact your nearest embassy and we can expedite your visa so 
So I think it was kind of that reaction. And I think Germany is doing the same thing. It's training Filipino nurses to even learn the language and go to Germany and have all of these benefits so it becomes a, a destination for healthcare workers. And I think we can even broaden the conversation here. We're not just talking about nurses. We're also talking about workers in care homes. So basically domestic labor that are frontliners um, in this pandemic. So I think when President Duterte banned nurses from leaving, it's not even appealing to any nationalistic sensibility. It was just really the case of our hospitals are understaffed. And it raises the question of, well, and I guess it's the same for a lot of countries around the world. There has been a history of just defunding public health and, you know, reprioritizing other expenses. In this case, prioritizing the president's slush fund so he can use it for whatever purpose he likes that can't be audited. So I guess these are all interlinked issues. I've seen that, on the other hand, since you are in Australia. In Philippines, we have more than 8,000 cases right now, uh, data from the 26th April, and more than 500 deaths. On the contrary, in Australia, we have more than 6,000 cases, but only 83 deaths. What do you think is the difference between the policies they are doing in Philippines and in Australia to make Australia a kind of successful case because people are not dying? Or do you think there's an underreporting on these numbers, even in Australia? Yes, it's hard to kind of just take the numbers at face value because you know the number of cases because of the number of tests that you made. So I would imagine um, these numbers are not really comparable um, as in apples to apples. But you're right in the sense that uh, Australia and New Zealand are now global darlings of how to contain the pandemic. And I think in hindsight, these policies that the Australian government put in place kind of really felt draconian. And this really affected me because I travel a lot. And then to hear that there's a global travel ban, it's um, they call it a category four um, for the foreign affairs ministry, like do not travel. And I usually just see that do not travel advice when I go to war zones for my research or when I go to actually even category three is quite serious. It means reconsider travel. But to put the entire world as a category four do not travel felt really, really draconian because the idea is, you know, Australia is an island. We have to keep our borders safe. So that's really a very decisive move on the part of government, which at that time I really did not appreciate. Hello, I had Easter plans. Come on. But... But I really, I really felt trapped. But on the other hand, now everyone's kind of seeing the value of that draconian measure because it's an emergency situation. So there are really these very intense measures. And the latest, I guess, controversial measure that the Australian government put in place is an app that tracks the people you meet. So I think it's done via Bluetooth. It's not required for the entire population to download the app, but it kind of is framed as a bargain in terms of we can ease the restrictions Oh, did we lose her? Valerie, then? Um, was that the app that uh, I think I read that about, was it about a million Australians had sort of signed up to it so far, sort of thereabouts? Yeah, uh, 30%, oh, sorry, 40% of the population has to sign up for it to work. Yeah, so in a way, this app is like a bargain. Like, if you want to ease restrictions, we need to track who gets in contact with who. So I think this is really a good experiment in terms of debate between civil liberties and collective and collective good. I mean, I had to debate with myself if I if I were to download this app in the end, I did not for any rational thinking, but just out of frustration, like, okay, let's just get on with it. 
and what would this app do that Facebook doesn't know anyway? So it's kind of that acceptance of surveillance capitalism. <laughs> so that is, I think, why um, why Australia is very much celebrated. There are more romantic accounts of how they let the experts rule, they put partisanship aside, the same with New Zealand. Um, that calls for, you know, closer, closer analysis. But yeah, in a way, that's kind of what makes Australia the exception, just the decisiveness and the quick action uh, in response to the pandemic. Um, I'd, uh, just kind of picking up on that theme of uh, civil liberties, I sort of had a question going back to the case of the Philippines, um, just because at the moment I've been thinking a lot, as I know a lot of people have, about the sort of what comes after question. And it kind of struck me that when you were describing the situation in the Philippines and the kind of violent rhetoric surrounding that, you know, shooting people who went outside, that kind of thing, there was a consistency with what was happening even before this became a kind of global crisis. And I was just kind of curious what you thought, just because uh, recently I read a, a really interesting article by Franklin DeVries in the um, Westminster Foundation for Democracy about, you know, how in parliaments are, for example, in sort of guaranteeing civil liberties returning, for example, after these kind of moments of crisis. Um, I was sort of curious what you thought about the situation in the Philippines once this becomes a much less immediately serious problem, whether there might still be echoes of the kind of sort of crisis moment that we're facing at the moment in terms of policies, or whether it will be a simple return to a situation that was already kind of reprehensible. I was, I was wondering what you thought about what the aftermath might look like from a sort of policy-making yeah, it's kind of difficult to predict what will happen, but if we just base it in terms of the patterns that we are seeing, then we can just say that one eventuality is that there is a lot of power given to state forces, whether the police or military, without accountability. So, okay, we understand that the police and the military have to guard the streets and make sure people are quarantined. Uh, of course, we understand that it has to be soldiers, maybe, that has to do a temperature check every time people cross through checkpoints. But the problem is if you put state forces in charge without sufficient mechanisms for accountability, then we have a problem. And now we hear a lot of reports from both rich and poor communities of police abuse. So, for example, there is this very swanky, residential, gated community where the police just entered and then just let everyone leave the swimming pool. And of course, you can imagine all of these crazy rich Asians just being crazy rich Asians, like, what about my civil liberties? And they're all angry and they're taking videos and they're, you know, just very angry, which is an act of privilege, of course. You're not meant to congregate, uh, even in private spaces anyway, right? E even if it's a private swimming pool in your very swanky apartment complex. But there is not this sense that they can hold the police into account by trespassing in their properties. So those are crazy rich Asian people's problems. But in poorer communities, for example, there have been instances of protests of urban poor activists because they need work. They need to work. When you say lockdown will happen, how will people live? People are daily wage earners. If you impose a lockdown and say you can only go to the supermarket once a week to get your supplies, that presupposes that slum communities have refrigerators to store whatever they buy from the supermarket or that vegetables will not rot or there are no rats living in their homes that will not eat the food that they store. So it just makes all of these sorts of assumptions. So in these communities, kind of protested against their restrictions, the response was violence again. It was a violent dispersal of these protests. Is this new? It's not new. We've seen this many times. So in a way, the pandemic or the government's response to the pandemic 
I don't think will change the trajectory of Philippine policy in terms of using state violence. It makes it more frequent and it makes it a bit more scary because there is now a justification for greater um, police and, and military power. And this is not to say that the military and the police are not professional. I mean, there have been a lot of efforts um, to professionalize the security sector in the Philippines. If anything, this attempt of giving them license to just act irresponsibly goes against that kind of earlier trajectory to, to professionalize the police force and the military. Um, I had a, um, I think, a slightly more theoretical question about uh, deliberative uh, democracy uh, that I was very, uh, very curious to hear your thoughts on. Because um, I guess just kind of generally, I've seen uh, a lot of discussions kind of in the UK and elsewhere about what a situation like this might mean for sort of greater efforts towards deliberative democracy or kind of incorporating deliberative mechanisms into um, democratic uh, systems and practices. And it kind of struck me that on the one hand, you know, the dependence on, you know, kind of person-to-person communication might be affected by something like lockdown, but also it seems to me that a practice like deliberative democracy makes very good use of technologies that make use of web links and all that kind of thing. And in the case of the UK, the Climate Change Assembly has been moved online, you know, so there's been kind of efforts to maintain uh, sort of deliberative systems and mechanisms. And I just wondered, I, I guess maybe just at a very kind of broad level, whether you'd sort of considered uh, the sort of COVID pandemic uh, alongside deliberative democracy and whether it might threaten some of its premises or even show deliberative techniques to be especially useful. So it's almost kind of help it along, help kind of facilitate it in some way in the sense of kind of online parliamentary uh, discussion, that kind of thing. I think there are two layers to that question. Well, first is how do we practice democratic deliberation in a context where citizens can't assemble, physically at least. And so now the literature, I think, finally, the question is no longer online deliberation, good or bad. Well, no choice. Online deliberation is happening. The question is what kind of design um, enables online deliberation to maximize the affordances of digital technologies. So in a way, and there's actually a lot of excellent work being done in the UK, in France, when they had to adjust their climate assemblies uh, in relation to this. Australian um, practitioners have also been taking part in a lot of learning calls and engagement sessions just to make sense of how public engagement can continue online. So that's not really my area of expertise, but I think the field, especially in the field of deliberative mini-publics, will go to that direction on how to maximize the affordances of digital media. But if we think about this on the more macro-theoretical scale, I think this is where the interesting questions about deliberative theory kicks in, because I think it asks us to reconceptualize some of our assumptions about public deliberation. And this also draws on my work in the disaster when I wrote the book, uh, Democracy in a Time of Misery. So for example, how can we have a public deliberation at a time when the public is undefined? We talk about, we need a national discussion on what happens after the pandemic, or we need a public discussion on which civil liberties we're willing to give up or whatever, right? So there are a lot of calls for, yeah, a public discussion about controversial policy decisions. But then it leads, it begs the question, who is part of that public? Who are we assuming are people who are part of that public? So, for example, in my context, as as a migrant worker, I'm not a citizen. So if we do a national conversation and do that by sortition, I will not be part of the roster that can be picked 
with poor sortition. And this is a reality for many countries, right? What the pandemic exposes is really the very awkward place of migrant labor all over the world. When they're told to stay at home, people like me would ask, hang on a minute, what is home? I work here, but mentally my home is somewhere else. Um, am I a citizen of this country when the prime minister says, go home? Is this my home or is the Philippines my home or is elsewhere in the world my home where all my different relationships are? So I really, I really felt confused about that. So I think it interrogates categories of the common good. Whose common good are we talking about? Because it means different things uh, to different people. When we talk about the concept of the public who is not included in that public, who is not part of this national conversations, refugees are not part of this national conversation. Tell a refugee to stay home. What is home for a refugee, right? Or tell a victim of domestic violence to stay home. Who benefits from this concept of the public and the concept of the common good? So I think at this very moment, uh, deliberative theory is being forced to kind of rethink the boundaries, the construction of the public and how biased that notion of the public is, on how it's very much tied to a very Westphalian nation-state kind of thinking, but it doesn't really give way to the porous boundaries of how porous the boundaries of the public is when we talk about the pandemic. So I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges for theories right now. How do we reconstruct the public not in a way that can be fully inclusive, but one, a construction of the public that is more humble and transparent, recognizing that not everyone can be part of that public, that there will be exclusions, and how we can better respond to those exclusions. So, yeah, I think that's where the theoretical work um, is or should be uh, after this pandemic, or actually now, as we constitute new worlds because of this pandemic. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Thank you. I um, I wondered whether a sort of takeaway from this kind of situation might be sort of better and more widespread use of technology for discussions and decision making, but also that kind of uh, conceptualization or reconceptualization of things like a public or, you know, a home, sort of go home, stay home, those kind of questions as well. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see kind of deliberate theory being applied in that kind of specific case in point. So, yeah, thank you. I think that's it to talk about. Okay, cool. <laughs> it was an amazing talk. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you too. I hope you, yeah. you do very well during this pandemic and I hope you can meet presentially soon. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, yes. yes. Thank you. you. You guys stay well. Thank, thank you very you. much. It was really appreciated. Thank you. was the first episode of the podcast Democratic Engagement Today and it had the technical support of Isani Mustafa and Rosana Barros. Thank you for your audience. See you later.